Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right. Um, well, uh, welcome to this week's More to Come. I have the great pleasure uh, of interviewing Josh O'Neill, um, a, a retailer, I guess a former comics retailer, uh, publisher, uh, the, the, the new uh, innovator. I'm <laughs> here. You go. I'm gonna try and embarrass you, Josh. Uh, really, um, uh, the um, uh, the co-founder of Beehive uh, Beehive Books uh, and other public. Uh, Josh, welcome to More to Come. Thanks so much, Calvin. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, obviously, we we've been talking for a while about this, Josh. And um, what I really would like to do, as I said, uh, you are like the, a former uh, uh, founder, uh, co-founder, excuse me, of Locust Moon, uh, the the comic shop in in Philadelphia, uh, as well as it being a, a small press publisher of comics, as well as you having a sort of mini comics festival, if I, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, we did four four years in a row. Uh, uh, but you've also been you've got you have interesting ventures in. In using crowdfunding to uh, to do specialty publishing in comics, uh, your new venture now, Beehive Books, is also uh, a really interesting model uh, for specialty publishing. So, we I, I want to get to talking all about that, how comics figure in it, how you've come up with this uh, an interesting new way uh, to to uh, create support or to find funding for unusual projects. But first, <laughs> I'd love for you to tell. Um, you know, our listeners, a little bit about uh, yourself. Sure, absolutely. Well, um, so I love comics. <laughs> it's like an insane level of passion that I can't even fully understand. Well, that's what we like. <laughs> I've been obsessed with comics since I was a little kid in the newspaper and superheroes. And I mean, I, that's all the stuff that I that I grew up on. Sure. And so I, I first got involved in the comic industry in 2000 nine mm-hmm. um when i met my partners who would eventually become my partners at locust moon press andrew carl and chris stevens mm-hmm. and uh we started working together on an anthology project called uh, once upon a time machine sure mm-hmm. which was a collection of uh comics by different artists and writers which each took a, a classic fairy tale and gave it kind of a sci-fi twist um and I met them because uh, Chris and I were working together at this uh, – it was a video store that also had a little comic shop kind of in uh-huh. the back. And so we were sort of running the comic shop element of it. Um, and that video store was kind of going the way that video stores were going at the time. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, we were always talking about like how, how cool it would be uh, if – because as, as – being in comic retail at the time, we were meeting all of these amazing cartoonists and we were realizing what an incredible thriving comic book scene there was in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was sort of through that scene and that circle of cartoonists, we, we realized we knew all of these unbelievably talented people, many of whom had never really published anything in the mainstream. A lot of whom were struggling mm-hmm. to get their work seen and paid attention to, mm-hmm. um, so that's why uh, we sort of came up with the idea of Once Upon a Time Machine to sort of bring all these. We we're like, OK, we're all doing all this interesting stuff. Let's all do something together and we'll have this big collective thing. Um, and that was our first publishing project. Um, and mm-hmm. we ended up putting it out through Dark Horse in 2012, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. it finally came out. And who were the, um, who, who, who were the artists in that book? 
Um, I mean, there was a, there was over over fifty artists in uh-huh. there. I mean, mm. I, it was mostly people who were not known at all at, mm-hmm. at the time. I mean, for most of the people in the book, it was uh, their their first like mainstream mm-hmm. publishing project. But artists like Charlie Featheroff and Jimmy Comey and mm-hmm. Rob Woods and uh, Brandon Graham uh, mm-hmm. and Marion Churchland did something in there, mm-hmm. and uh, Ryan Otley did a pinup for us. Uh, um, but it was a real kind of collective grassroots thing. Uh, and a lot of the artists were based in Philly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's impressive that you're able to get a, you know, a uh, significant publishing partner, uh, conventional publisher to work with you. Yeah. Well, we, we were already done with the book by the time we even reached mm-hmm. out uh, to Dark Horse. We had, we had pitched it around uh, to some different companies and not, not had much interest. Um, but Dark Horse, as soon as they saw it, I mean, it, I think it was just sort of right up their alley. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they expressed an interest right away. And, uh, it was great. It was, I mean, it was amazing to be able to work with a publisher we had so much respect for. And sure. it was a real kind of way into the comic industry uh, to get your work seen by people that um, otherwise it would be very, very tough to get their attention. Mm-hmm. But it was great. And now we're, we're working right now on, uh, we're just wrapping up a sequel. That we're, we're doing the second Once Upon a Time Machine book, which is, in, is science fiction adaptations of Greek mythology. Oh, really? So, and, oh, uh, I see. So and I, that's going to... Is that going to be is that going to be under Beehive Books or under No, no, that's under that's through Dark Horse again. This uh, oh, so it's straight, oh, I see it's got right, Dark Horse. It's completely dark. Well, so you um but you're still working with Carl I guess in the uh Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. and Andrew and Andrew, Andrew has really kind of taken the reins of of Once Upon a Time Machine and, and he's he's been the one sort of uh getting it across the finish line. We're literally just putting the final touches mm-hmm. on it right now. Um and uh, it should go off to print pretty soon. I see. And uh, we're we're very very excited about it. I think. It's well, this is what's interesting. You, cool book. You've got so many things going on because I mean, while you were doing the publishing, of course, you were running this retail operation. Um, I, I unfortunately never got to actually go to the Locust Moon comic shop, but I heard I got rave reviews about it from everybody else that I knew. Um, oh, thank you. Um, but you, you you have since um uh, gotten out of the retail business. Yeah, we. It's almost exactly. It's almost a year to the day ago we closed. Uh, we closed Locust Moon, mm-hmm. which was a very bittersweet thing. We ran that shop for six years, uh-huh. um, and uh, it. I mean, why'd you get out of it? <laughs> As if I don't know. Retail's tough. Comic, comic retail is a tough business, man. <laughs> and uh, I mean, we we did it for for a long time, and I loved doing it. I was. I mean, both Chris and I. Uh, Andrew was not directly involved with the store because he didn't live in Philly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was our partner on the publishing end of things. Mm-hmm. Chris and I, Chris Stevens and I, own the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and we put everything we had into that store. We really tried to build a temple mm-hmm. for the kind of comics that we loved and cared about. Um, and I mean, it's. Did you make money? Hard, I mean, we made a living off it while, while we were doing it. It wasn't mm-hmm. much of a living, you know. I mean, we, it was like, and that's part of the reason we we ended up closing up was just you could look down the line and see how the next twenty years could hit a time warp, and you're sort of just running on the same treadmill of just trying desperately to keep this thing afloat, yeah. and to you know, like keep yourself fed while you know spending ten hours a day working in this retail shop, yeah. Um, 
but I mean, it was it, any comic shop is a really, really tough business model. And we were specifically trying to run a comic shop that was really not focused on superhero comics. Sure. I mean, we carried plenty of superhero comics. Yeah. But we were trying to focus on the sort of more independent side of things, the comics that we were most passionate mm-hmm. about. Um, and I'm not even sure it's possible at this stage of the comic industry. I think it's becoming more and more possible every year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if it's possible to run a profitable comic shop that is not largely based on superhero yeah, comics yeah. yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it will be. I think the industry is uh-huh. changing very quickly. Um, but I, I, I think sure. we sort of jumped the gun a little bit. But running that store for so long, I mean, the you know, we, we made some mistakes as retailers. Uh, there were things we could have done better. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I think we did really, really well was – try to build a community mm-hmm. here in Philadelphia. We were really focused on trying to do events and trying to do classes and screenings and talks. And we, we just had an incredibly active community that was built up around the store. And we really became like a hub for creative people in Philadelphia for cartoonists and artists and writers and filmmakers. Um, and so it became this place where people could really come together and, and work on these wonderful projects and, without without having the sort of basis of that store to start like drawing people together mm-hmm. we would never have been able to do projects like the little nemo project and the the big collaborative uh ambitious things that we did without sort of having this this sense of community that those those things get built up around and um, and, and clearly it also this was your introduction into in fact becoming publishers yourselves um and it seems as though, in particular, uh, it, it, it there was a, a perfect timing at, with the rise of crowdfunding. It's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, that is so we, as soon as we once we had the shop, I mean, we had the shop, we were doing Once Upon a Time Machine, but really realized we wanted to be able to just put out our own stuff and not be reliant on trying to find large publishers to do everything with. So so we went into crowdfunding. The, the first thing we, uh, we uh, I did this uh quarterly comics magazine called quarter moon oh yeah Um, that -hmm. that was the first thing that we crowdfunded it was a very small project uh just to try to Mm -hmm. uh fund one of the issues of quarter moon how Uh, much money did you raise uh we we were trying to raise i think twenty five hundred dollars and we raised i think six thousand or something Mm -hmm. like that so it was very small Mm -hmm. um but it was mostly just us trying to like dip our toes into the crowdfunding waters because i was very interested in that new model and exactly exactly how it could work um but when we really dove in was in when in 2013 we did a uh, Kickstarter campaign for this book Little Nemo Dream Another Dream that we yes. put out, um, which was kind of what put us on the map as a as a as a for small sure publisher. it certainly put you on my map. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, as was, I recall, you showed me pages from it at the um, Society of Illustrators, right. uh, MOCA, and I was completely blown away. So please describe, I mean, people have heard about this, but for those of our listeners who may not have heard about um, uh, uh, Little Nemo, Dream Another Dream, maybe you can des- describe it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I remember when we, we met you, that was like during the period when we were still working on the book and we were carrying around yes. this gigantic portfolio. <laughs> Full-size art pages. And, I mean, it was, an, it was an absurd thing to do, to just haul this thing around to parties. And stuff yes, it was like a party. <laughs> it was totally inappropriate. But like, you know, nobody knew who we were and we were, we were like dead set on we were going to make an impact here. But the, so the project was a tribute to Windsor McKay and mm-hmm. Little Nemo and Slumber. 
Slumberland, which is for me personally, I don't think there's ever been a comic better than Little Sure on Slumberland. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's obviously a comic that has influenced so many people, including so many cartoonists and illustrators. Um, and uh, so our idea was to create a project where people could take that influence that they had gotten from McKay and pay it back with a tribute with a new little Nemo strip of mm-hmm. their own. Um, so, uh, and for any listeners who don't know, little Nemo was a, uh, an early newspaper comic started in 1905. Uh, it was from the turn of the century. They were full page Sunday newspaper. Yeah. Strips. Like the broadsheet and, size page, you know, yeah, 16 the, yeah. by 21 inches, yeah. gigantic mm-hmm. size. Um, and so each each strip was a full page, and it was a dream that this kid Nemo would have. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the task. And the last pa- – I, I, I just have to bring it – the last panel is always little Nemo waking up. He always wakes up in yeah. bed back home in the last panel. So we wanted each of these artists – there ended up being 140 different contributors to this book. Hmm. Um, we wanted each artist to have the exact same task that McKay had every Sunday, which is take this gigantic 16 by 21 broadsheet page – Fill it with a dream and then bring us back to reality in the last panel yeah. by having the dreamer wake up. Um, and so we started reaching out to every – I mean we made a, a wish list. Of mm-hmm. If we were making a, a dream book, both literally and figuratively, um, who would we want to contribute to this book? Who are the greatest cartoonists in the world who we think could do these brilliant McKay tributes? And then we just were, we were going to conventions all the time and we just started reaching out to everybody mm-hmm. one by one. And I mean, virtually every person we asked agreed to do it. I mean, I think a combination of the love of Windsor McKay sure. mm-hmm. and the chance to gigantic scale. And sooner or later, once we got a lot of kind of big name artists on board, um, it sort of had a, snowball effect where people were hearing about the project through other people who were working on it and people were posting works in progress on Instagram. So it became Mm -hmm. kind of a thing. And soon there were artists reaching out to us. And uh, I mean, it it really became this incredible crusade to (laughs) both honor Windsor McKay and create an incredibly ambitious project worthy of uh, his kind of genius and influence. Um, and working on that project was the greatest uh, thrill and pleasure of my life. And I think I can speak for Andrew and Chris and say the same thing. Um, and, and how much money did you raise? So we, we launched a Kickstarter campaign. Uh, we were trying to raise $50,000, which we were still pretty green at the time. And mm-hmm. we're very lucky we raised more than that because $50,000 would not have been enough. No. <laughs> uh, but we raised $150,000. I mean, it's really absolutely kind amazing. of extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, but. Yeah. I mean, if, if once if if anyone had seen these pages, and these are full color, beautifully illustrated original stories based on Windsor McKay's and Little Nemo, by an absolutely jaw dropping array of all star global artists. Yeah, I mean, it really is kind of a who's who of a lot of the greatest artists, car- cartoonists, and illustrators on the planet, uh, and a lot of younger people who are yeah. not as mm-hmm. well known, but who are every bit as brilliant and talented. Um, I mean, it, it, the book still blows my mind that, that it <laughs> even exists. And uh, yeah, so I mean, we were able to raise this this unprecedented uh, amount of money. I mean, it just dropped our jaws how how well it did. Um, and then it, it was so well received when we finally put it out uh, in 2014. Um, 
I mean, it was uh, it won multiple Eisner awards. Yes, you were an Eisner. Yes, right. It, it, Eisner's Harvey's. Uh, it, mm-hmm. it was you know reviewed in the New York Times. It was one of NPR's best books of 2014, and um, there was just on and on. It was, it was so amazing to see something that was such a passion project mm. by you know a, a group of people that uh, had not done that much stuff before. Yeah. Um, to to see it. Uh, to see it so widely uh, considered and and beloved, and I mean, mm. people really really took the book seriously and uh, seemed to care about it. As I mean, we realized as we were putting it together that this was really uh, beyond even just being a tribute to McKay. It was a tribute to his passion for comics and his belief that anything is possible on a comics sure. page that, you know, I mean, he was inventing these pages week by week, doing things that no one had ever done before devising this language of cartooning on the fly. And uh, I mean that uh, we, the book kind of became a testament to just this incredible broad swath of what you can achieve in this incredible medium. Um, and and so it, it seems to me thrill. that you know it also identified yet again I think the potential for crowdfunding um, and and what it can do for the small press independent press market uh, into bringing these kinds of uh, ambitious projects and turning them into reality. Yeah, I mean this is a project that you know I mean due to the names attached to it we could have brought it to a publisher, but they would never have wanted to print it at the size we wanted to print it at. That was, I mean, it was an insane, uh, unwieldy book that we created. <laughs> um, and so, I mean, that was, we, and we did actually, people started hearing about the project and we, re- we did receive offers from some publishers to take it to them, but we knew from the beginning, like this was, you know, and if the Kickstarter had failed, that would have been the direct. Yeah. Yeah. That would have been your fallback. Um, sure. Yeah. But uh, but we we knew we wanted uh, we had a vision for mm-hmm. what we wanted this project to be, and we did not want to have to even have conversations with anybody about whether <laughs> to compromise that vision. Um, Can so, I? I want to interject for just a second because I know at some times you have, uh, in some ways, you said you were inspired by Peter Maresca, right? Yes. Well, that's we. Uh, a part of our thinking about this project was that. As retailers, uh, we loved Pete Maresca's Sunday Press Little Nemo editions. Mm-hmm. I think just from a, from a pure bookmaking standpoint, mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever seen a book better than, than Pete Maresca's Little Nemo editions. They're uh, just yeah. so beautifully designed. And they're the only books mm-hmm. that, that I know of that have ever reproduced Little Nemo at their full original size. Yeah, yes. Uh, and uh, so uh, we, we ran this shop and we had this real thriving community of artists and one of the real one of the things that's so much fun about that when you have all these drink and draw events, you have all these all these uh, <laughs> parties that, that that artists are are coming to, and you have this room filled with all this amazing art and comics, and so you get to look at stuff with people and talk about stuff. And those uh, little Nemo books became kind of these like holy relics, like people mm-hmm. would, they would blow people's minds all the time, and it was a real pleasure to sit with a lot of these brilliant people and go through those books and talk about what McKay was doing. Um, and so when we were doing the little Nemo project, we really wanted to try to, I mean, from a design standpoint, we basically wanted to steal Pete's idea as much as we possibly could <laughs> there <you go. laughs> and create books that were real, uh, create books that would stand on a shelf next to his. And so I got in touch with Pete um, and, and he was an amazing resource, yeah, especially is. for, 
you know, I mean, we had done uh, some publishing projects before and worked with printers and stuff like that. But oh my god, like trying to do the the production uh, problems that come that come mm-hmm. along when you're trying to do a book that size are there's no way to be prepared for them unless you have somebody you're working with who has dealt with that kind of stuff before. So we literally, I mean, we copied his editions. Uh-huh. He, he gave us permission to, um, I mean, we used the same kind of paper. We used the mm-hmm. same printer. Uh, and basically the, the, we treated it almost like a sequel to his book. Yeah. Mm. Um, interesting. And so, uh, that was, well, he takes uh, archival uh, reprinting. He, he really lifts it to a work of art, uh, without just the, the production yeah. alone. Um, not to mention the extraordinary subject matter. Um, his books are art objects. Yeah. Really uh, without a doubt. That's, that's what we wanted to do. And, um, um, we didn't know how to do it. So we just copied yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the sincerest form of, of flattery. Exactly. Uh, um, but but once again, this is to me it sort of illustrates um, you know how you guys have have moved methodically into different areas of uh, you know of of, of publishing. Um, in particular, uh, like Little Nemo was a great thing, but I, I'd love for you to talk about a couple more of Locust Moon's projects, and then we're going to jump into Beehive Books. But I'm interested in the really kind of uh, what I consider uh, innovative deal you set up with the Philadelphia. Museum of Art, and I'm also very much interested in hearing you talk a little bit uh, for our listeners about the lost works of Will Eisner. So, um, take us through these, through those two projects. Absolutely, the the um, Museum of Art project was really, really interesting, and mm-hmm. uh, it was an amazing experience to be able to do that comic. So, I I, I knew some people just through uh, through running the store. I had met a few people who worked at the museum. And for a couple of years, we had been having very vague kind of back and forth emails of like, oh, maybe there's something Locust Moon can do with uh, with the PMA. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually what that came down to was uh, they were doing a project uh, last winter. Uh, I mean, winter of 2016. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're 2015. talking about the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they were doing an exhibition called Wrath of the Gods. Yes. That mm-hmm. was built around uh, the Rubens Prometheus Bound painting. Mm-hmm. The gi- it's like a 14 foot mm-hmm. tall, tall, gigantic painting of Prometheus being punished. He's strapped mm-hmm. to the top of the mountain with uh, be- with his liver being eaten. Yeah, eaten by the, yes, uh, yes. We- it's a horrifying, beautiful, <laughs> like all sturm and drang, like yes, a yes. metal painting. <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, remember so it from our mythology classes, but go on. <laughs> right. Um, so they were doing a, a uh, show built around that painting in which they had all kinds of historically connected works, the works that Rubens would have been studying at the time by Michelangelo and Titian, mm-hmm. um, uh, the uh, uh, the statue of the uh, Laocoon. So it's it's oh, right. going mm-hmm. from antiquity to the old masters to and so it was a really beautiful show and uh, it was filled with these figures of these sort of giant muscular men being tormented <laughs> yeah. and so. Uh, so their idea was, you know, this is Prometheus in the Rubens painting is almost a super heroic figure. Uh-huh. Um, so, so maybe there's a way we can do it. We can do a comic together. Um, so we, so, and, and the show itself was built around this idea of artistic succession of, uh, of Rubens studying these works that had come before him, um, in the recent past and the distant past. Um, and these sort of images of Prometheus and, 
different composition, sort of artistic compositions being passed down through time and being replicated from artist to artist. And so our idea was to continue that artistic succession by getting uh, the greatest uh, modern comic artists to do their own adaptations mm. of the myth of Prometheus Correct. as seen mm. through uh, the lens of that painting. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, and uh, so we commissioned work from, uh, I mean, an amazing list of people, um, including uh, Bill Sienkiewicz, uh, Farrell Dalrymple, yeah. Paul Pope, Yuko Shimizu, mm-hmm. uh, Dave McKean, David Mack, um, Grant Morrison. Uh, it was a real, uh, it was a, to be able to work with all these people on a relatively short 24-page comic. I mean, they were all, they all did very short stories. Some of them did pinups. Uh, Bill Sienkiewicz did the wraparound cover. Mm-hmm. Um and they all, all did a real wide variety of uh, amazing different types of adaptations of the myth of Prometheus from, you know, Grant Morrison and Farrell Dalrymple did Prometheus as a superhero. Yeah. And Dave McKean did this like very sort of poetic, mythic uh, mm-hmm. version of, of the myth itself. Um, and uh, uh, Lisk Fang uh, did a sort of modern day uh, or not modern day, it's set in like 1940s China, mm-hmm. uh, the adaptation where, where Prometheus is a father. It's very sort of down to earth. Um, and then Andrea Sarumi did an amazing story where she, uh, she sort of turns the story of Rubens creating this painting into a sort of Promethean, mm-hmm. uh, story. Um, so it was a really, a really fascinating project. Uh, we got to work with all these amazing people and worked with this am- amazing material from history. Um, and then when we delivered it, uh, it was intended as a thing to for for sale in the museum yeah. mm-hmm. gift shop. Um, the museum got so excited about it, and they loved it so much that uh, they decided to put the comic itself in the show, in the exhibition. I love like it alongside like Michelangelo. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. There were only there were only fourteen pieces in this show, and then the fifteenth was this. A comic book, which they they put on a little lectern, like so you could actually look through it. I love it, and it's like ten feet away. There's a Michelangelo. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Uh, And we did an event at the museum. Uh, We Mm. did like a book release party, and we a little talk uh, with. Um, and it was very cool uh, going through the exhibition with a lot of the artists who had who had contributed to it because. you had, like I said about the Nemo book, you had artists like Bill, who is one of the great legends of the history of comics. Yeah. And then somebody like Lisk Fang, who was an absolute genius, who was very young in her mid-twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you put both of them next to Michelangelo, it kind of creates a flat <laughs> plane. So they're both like, oh, my God. Yeah. This is yeah. amazing. It really is. <laughs> it was really cool. Um, well, this is so, just yeah, – com- this is just another one of the examples of, to me, just the innovation and this, this hybrid model that you developed there at Locust Moon of retailing, small press publishing, uh, and alternative funding. Well, that's we're trying to always keep our eyes open for for different possibilities and different ways that these things can combine. Especially, I mean, the comic industry has so many problems, but there. People are fascinated by comics right now in mm-hmm. a way that's that's relatively new and only growing. It seems yeah. like, mm-hmm. um, and so I mean, for for the museum, it was a real way for them to reach out to a different audience than yeah. they than they usually get um, to to try to try to communicate with younger people, and um, they were incredibly excited about it, and it. Uh, 
I mean, I think it, it, it works both ways. And so I'm, I'm always trying to keep my eyes open for, for different kinds of collaborations you can do with, with all these amazing institutions. Um, because I, I think possibilities like that are, are endless. Absolutely. So um, we're going to segue from that to uh, another Kickstarter funded project for, uh, if I'm not mistaken, right, for Locust Moon Press. And that was the lost yes. work of Will Eisner. So this was really a, a kind of re- revelation. Tell us more about it. So uh, this, this was a really mind-blowing project. We had a, a friend, Rich Green, who was a customer at, at Locust Moon. Um, and he was in the shop one day, um, and uh, we were just chatting and he said, uh, oh, I have this friend in Collingswood, uh, who, uh, collects, he collects antiques and he collects, uh, 1930s printing plates. And he found uh, a bunch of stuff that no one's ever seen before from Will Eisner from the mid thirties. Like, say and what? We were like, we were like, <laughs> no, you, you, you must mean mid fifties or so you, what do you you're, that doesn't make yeah. any sense. <laughs> That's not true. And he was like, no, no, it's true. I, I swear it's true. And so we were sort of like, okay, we'll go out and visit this guy's studio and uh, see what the hell he's talking about. Cause there must be some misunderstanding here. Um, and, and we went out there. And the guy's name is Joe Getzinger. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a retired uh, cop in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he had bought this collection of, I think, 8,000 1930s printing plates mm-hmm. without knowing at the time that he yeah. bought them uh, that they included over 100 plates by Will Eisner of not only comics that no one has ever seen before, uh, or mostly comics that no one has ever seen before, comics that predate any known comics work. That Eisner did. Interesting, I mean, yeah. And for, the, for his his very earliest stuff. For those who uh, may not know, um, uh, obviously we do. You know, Will Eisner is probably one of the greatest innovators in the history of American comics. Um, the creative of the great comic strip, The Spirit, uh, and many other works. Uh, just just uh, for our listeners who may not know. Yeah, sorry, thanks, Calvin. Uh, yeah, you a little more background. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Eisner is—he was one of the guys who devised the modern language of cartooning. If yes. there's a Mount Rushmore of cartooning, Eisner is on it. Yes. Uh, and uh, so to to come across this stuff, uh, which you know, I mean, and this was uh, within a 20 minute drive from our store. This mm-hmm. guy had this stuff. We're like, what? This this seems too good to be true. Um, so. Uh, yeah, we ended up doing this Kickstarter campaign to fund production of an archival edition, which we called The Lost Works of Will Eisner. Um, and it, it's a really fascinating thing because some of it does not even look really recognizably like Eisner. I mean, he was mm-hmm. so young. We don't know exactly what year it was created. It was mm-hmm. the mid-30s. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, he was he was less than 20 at the time. Um, and he may even have been in high school when he drew Mm. some of this stuff and so you can really see him almost in real time like finding his voice as an artist i mean he has these two different strips which are in completely different styles Um, yeah and uh, but you can see the command i mean it's funny even at that early age that there is a certain command to the drawing um um in in both of them so with two strips uncle otto and and another one harry carey yeah yeah, Uncle Otto seems pretty clearly influenced by the Little King, and even mm-hmm, I, yeah. Otto Suglau. So, yes. you know, like he may even have named it after that. Um, so, and, and there's a lot of E.C. Seeger you can see in there mm-hmm. too, and you can really see Eisner 
you know, he's very heavily influenced, as all probably young artists are. Um, and he's just trying to figure out who he is. So he's trying on these different styles for size. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really fascinating to see. And you can see in the Harry Carey strip, um, it starts off, Harry Carey is like a secret agent. And when the strip starts off, it's like a slapstick a uh, secret agent strip about mm -hmm. this kind of like incompetent spy. Uh, and it's very much in the vein of Popeye uh, artistically. Um, and then there's one strip. I mean, I guess he just got tired of drawing in that style because there's one strip. It's like the 11th strip. I think he's mm -hmm. done 10 of these things in this kind of slapstick style. Um, and then there's, there's one where Harry Carey gets a phone call. There's like panel one. It's like Harry, Harry Carey gets a phone call and then it's like he's called away to another country on a different mission. Yeah. And then panel three is in a totally different art style. Yeah. And it's now – this the series has now become a melodrama. Mm. Um, the comedy is gone. And now it's it's more like kind of Alex Raymond dry brush. Um, mm. So just in the midst of one of these strips, he's like, I'm tired of this comedy. Now it's going to be a drama. And so he's like <laughs> reinventing his – own voice just panel to panel literally within one one comic um so it's very cool to see uh he's sort of you can tell he doesn't really have the alex raymond thing down yet when he starts off doing that but you can see him figure it out as he goes along um and then by the time he gets to the end of harry carey it's really starting to resemble the beginnings of the style that would become the spirit mm -hmm. so it's like you can sort of watch this artist's development in in real time which is, is very fascinating. Um, and how much money did you raise to publish this? Uh, we, we raised 54000 Yeah, Yeah, um, amazing. Uh, and, and, and I should say the book has an introduction by, uh, you know, the great uh, Kitchen Sink publisher and underground cartoonist uh, Dennis Kitchen. Yeah, who knows? Who knows Eisner better than anyone? Yes, and who, who was his uh, so publisher for many, many years as well. Yes. Um, yeah, so what, what did you learn from this? <laughs> Can you pull one or a couple of things? What, what did you learn from publishing that, other than that you really have your idea, you, you're really after unusual publishing projects? Well, I mean, one thing that I had sort of started to get a hint of before that, but re really redoubled uh, my thinking about that, was just the incredible fertility of comics history and scholarship and how much work there is to be done. Um, because there are just, you know, there, there's no, there's no real academic framework built mm -hmm. around comics. So very little real archeology span get, gets done. And so we're still sort of living in this world where there are so many things like that. I mean, this Eisner thing was a weird one-off. Mm -hmm. it, it just happened. This guy sort of discovered it by accident. Um, and then was a great custodian of it. But there are a million uh, things like that that are, are known to be out there but have, have never seen reprint. And uh, it's sort of, it, you know, it's, it's like I, I remember when I, when I visited Israel at some point in my life. You, you just get this sense of Rome or someplace mm -hmm. like, like that. There's literally like history. If you like just dig a hole in the ground, you're going to find a piece of history <laughs> yes. in there. Like, um, <laughs> it's older than anything like you've seen. Because there's only really a handful of like Dean Mullaney's and Craig, Craig Yo's and people mm -hmm. like that who are really doing this very serious work. Um, so there is so much to be done. It's a, such an untapped uh, 
resource. And we're living now in sort of the golden age of reprints. Um, I mean, uh, yeah. until 15 years ago, virtually everything from uh, from the distant past was out of print. Um, and now, you know, there are these IDW editions and mm-hmm. uh, uh, treasury editions editions and things like that. So, so there, there's more than there ever was before, but it's only scratching the surface of, of what's out there. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested in, in, uh, with, in, especially with Beehive, with sort of our new venture, uh, trying to figure out what other kinds of archival projects we can do. Well, this uh, is, this is a I perfect, it's, it's important work. This is a perfect point to segue, uh, into Beehive books, your new venture, um, I mean, is Locust Moon Press, uh, uh, is it, uh, done? Is that, or is it, or is sort of, uh, we're not, dormant? we're not finished, but we're, we're kind of, yeah, we're going to stay pretty small. Uh-huh. Um, we're, we're going to put out, uh, one, the Once Upon a Time Machine sequel and, uh, Andrew and Chris and I may sort of come together to do, to do a project from time to time, maybe years down the line, we'll mm-hmm. do like a little Nemo sequel or something like that. But I know Andrew and Chris in particular, um, they both got into this, uh, more because they wanted to be like authors of graphic novels and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I feel cool. like they, we got sort of diverted into this publishing stuff, um, Interesting. And, okay. And I think they want to redouble their efforts on writing a little bit and sort of mm. look at editing and publishing as a little bit more of a sideline. Um, so right. I started Beehive as kind of – Yeah. A, so tell us about Beehive Books. And, and, and once again, you've got some very un- – or certainly have one really unusual project. Yeah. So the first project uh, we did was – And who's your partner? It's a, we did a – uh, my partner is, is Mael Dolovo, mm-hmm. um, who is an artist and designer. I, I'm, I don't know if you're familiar with her work, but she does these uh, gorgeous uh, cut paper comics. Oh, nice. I'm like, not. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Oh, she did a strip in the Little Nemo book, which is how, how I first cool. met her. Mm-hmm. Um, and her work is absolutely amazing. She's a brilliant designer, a brilliant thinker about the medium. Um, and uh, she has a really like unique sense of uh, sort of art as physical object and, mm. and as, as design. Um, so uh, it's it's a really wonderful partnership uh, between us, sort of putting these projects together and figuring out how we can make each project we do a really, really unique work of art, not just due to the contents, but due to, mm-hmm. to the design and how it's presented and what we create for these Kickstarter campaigns and, sure. and things like that. Um, so we've been working very closely together on this beehive stuff. Um, and the first project that we did um, is it's called the Temple of Silence, Forgotten Works and Worlds of Herbert Crowley. And uh, again, I mean, it fits right in with this kind of history is everywhere uh, comics archaeology approach. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an art book collecting work by a cartoonist painter sculptor Mm. visionary uh, illustrator brilliant person from the turn of the century named herbert crowley um Mm -hmm. his work basically spans from like 1900 to about like 1935 and he has been completely forgotten uh, Mm -hmm. by history his a couple of his comic strips which were featured in the New York Herald. And actually, he only did 14 comic strips. So he was not... Hmm, interesting. You, you wouldn't describe him primarily as a comic artist. Um, but they are the only things that have really been remembered from his career, mm-hmm. partially because they were printed on the back of Little Nemo um, in the New York <laughs> Herald. Interesting, um, yeah. Which is, how, which is how I first became aware of them. Um, and uh, But he only did it for 14 weeks. And there were Sunday strips. It was called The Wig 
so much. And there are these incredibly surreal mm-hmm. sort of poetic symbolist strips about these like little round creatures in these worlds of wooden toy people. Um, <laughs> okay. And they're very bizarre and very, very brilliant. Um, and I, I first saw them because uh, I think Pete Maresca republished. Uh, I know Pete Maresca republished a couple, a couple of them, his forgotten fantasy book. That's all about forgotten artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Dan Nadell's Dan Ad- Art Out of Oh, time, yes, right. Mm-hmm. Dan uh, collected a few of them. Was it? Um, was he an Art Out of Time? Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, that, that's yeah, Dan- Nadell's book I, about I essentially forgotten trips. comics. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nadell's uh, in the uh, um, in the end of the Art Out of Time book. There's little biographies of each contributor to it. And the biography of Herbert Crowley, this is how little is known about Herbert Crowley at the point when Art Out of Time came out. Um, the biography says nothing besides the existence of these strips. Nothing is known about the life or work of Herbert Crowley. Um, uh, there's a mystery for you. Yeah. So I met this artist from Philadelphia, this guy, Justin Dewar, who's mm-hmm. a very fascinating figure and a brilliant artist in his own right. Um, who, in addition to being this amazing artist, um, loves tracking down mysteries that's kind of his Mm -hmm. hobby he loves researching things on the sort of amateur level he just Mm -hmm. loves finding things out that no one knows about Mm -hmm. so he saw uh, the wiggle much stuff in uh, art out of time and became a completely obsessed with it (laughs) Um, and he started trying to pull at it whereas i had also when I saw the uh, Wiggle Much stuff, I also became interested in it. I Googled it, found absolutely no information on the hmm. internet, uh-huh. and said, um, well, there goes that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you <laughs> gave up. Justin started going to libraries and started wow. calling people. And um, and so he tracked down the – he went to Switzerland where he found members of Crowley's family and traveled wow. around Switzerland collecting his work. Uh-huh. He literally – I mean Justin – pulled at every loose end he found an address in rockland county in upstate new york um where crowley had briefly lived in like the early 19 teens and he said i'm just going to go there um and so he drives to this address expecting maybe there'll be somebody living in the house that maybe knows who they bought the house from and maybe that person has some Mm -hmm. connection he finds deep in the woods the ruins of what used to be this house that it's collapsed into the forest, but the, the roof is still intact. Wow. Um, so he like climbs inside <laughs> the ruins of this house where there are raccoons living and silver fish. And I mean, it's been, it's being reclaimed by nature. Right. And he finds like boxes of Crowley's correspondence. Wow. Pieces of original art, like these actual publishable things, which are now going to be in this in this art book that we've been putting together. Um, and so when I first started talking to Justin about this, uh, which was about three and a half years ago, mm-hmm. um, he had already done a fair amount of this research. And I got involved and we started taking some of these trips together and doing a lot of the research together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we both became so passionate about this project. And um, so we launched a Kickstarter uh in uh, September uh, to do this project and it really blew up to a level we did not fully expect. We raised almost a hundred thousand dollars in service of this artist that virtually no one in the world has ever heard of before. Um, And so we're going to do this big oversized 11 by 17 inch Mm -hmm. uh, art book collecting uh, 
a mass of his work and his work spans, you know, he would do these unbelievably detailed drawings of temples. One drawing would take him a year to complete. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, wow. they're gorgeous and sort of Byzantine and hallucinogenic. And I mean, he has work that you would look at it and swear this has to be from the 1970s. Mm. Um, but it's from 1910. And then he has other work that you would look at it and think this is from 1622. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I mean, he really is a true visionary. His art is unlike any other art I've ever seen. Um, and the fact that he was completely forgotten. Um, Which is pretty amazing, he, actually, because he was really kind of uh, kind of in the mix at a very historic period in American he art. He was. He was. He was, uh, he was sort of, for a period in the early teens, he was a rising star avant-garde artist in New York. Mm. Um, he never really reached the state of fame, mm. but he was known in artistic circles for a little while, partially because uh, he was in the Armory show yeah, in the, 1913. Sure. Um, the famous show like introduced. The, mm-hmm. the defining show of modern art in America. It mm-hmm. was the show where America became acquainted with uh, Picasso mm-hmm. and Van Gogh and Renoir. And Duchamp, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean all of the big names of European modern art. Um, it was it was like the galvanizing moment in, in American art where, where, where the avant-garde was suddenly ascendant. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's Herbert Crowley with two pieces hanging alongside yeah. Van Gogh and Picasso in that show. Um and I mean, his his work is actually uh, partially because his wife had uh, uh, some connection to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. There is an archive of his work that was sitting in an uncatalogued box at, in the Met's archive. Yeah. So Justin and I actually, you know, went in uh, and uh, we paid to have it all, all photographed and we we uh, cataloged it all for them. Um, so it's like this – it's a fascinating mystery. This guy who was in the Armory Show who has work archived at the Metropolitan Museum of Art mm. and literally nothing is known about mm. him. Uh, it's a, such a – fascinating story and uh, uh justin and to a lesser extent i um have have done really really deep research and uh, we uh, worked together justin wrote a uh, an incredible 20,000 word biography of crowley that digs up his whole story which is fascinating mm-hmm. and he crosses paths with so many important figures of modernism in that era um he eventually becomes uh, very close with uh, carl jung and moves uh to switzerland to be part of jung's inner circle and he's undergoing mm-hmm. jungian analysis and there's right. it's, it's a fascinating story um he fought in world war one and, and uh, is this biography a part of your book yes yeah yes it's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's, it's it's in the book, and uh, so yeah, we've uh, we're in the design stage now. Uh, I'm working with this amazing designer named Paul Keppel, um, who I'm about to go have lunch have lunch with after we finish, <laughs> you finish talking. So uh, when when can we expect to see the book? Um, it'll be out. Uh, it'll be out to Kickstarter backers in October, mm-hmm. um, and we hope to have it on bookshelves by December. Great. All right, that's really amazing. Um. Uh, um I mean, this is obviously an illustration of the kinds of projects uh, that you're doing. I know you're still in the middle of working on this. Have you identified other projects that you that you uh, might think about doing after this? Well, yeah, we have some very exciting stuff that we're working on, some of which I can talk about and some of which I can't. Uh, but the, the next thing that we're going to launch, um, and I have not officially said this anywhere, I don't think. Um, we like we're scoops. Gonna launch a, yeah, there we go. <laughs> we're going to do a Kickstarter for a line of uh, illustrated novels uh, by uh-huh. some of the greatest 
cartoonists and illustrators in the world, including Paul Pope, uh, Yuko Shimizu, Peter Cooper, um, taking classic novels and doing big, oversized, gorgeously designed editions of them uh, with beautiful full-page and spot illustrations. Um, So creating these real kind of literary art objects, um, these real sort of high-end, beautiful Mm -hmm. uh, publications that are – and these are going to be like classic novels, like public domain materials. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. like like Alice in Wonderland. Uh-huh, uh, great. The, the, uh-huh. one, the one Paul Pope is doing is a it's a, 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 a book by an art, a writer named Algernon Blackwood, uh, uh-huh. who's a weird horror writer from the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called The Willows. Absolutely amazing horror novel. Uh, and so, yeah, we're going to do these absolutely beautiful editions, and we're very very excited about that. And we're planning to launch a Kickstarter for that this spring. Great. Um, well, you know, we're getting close to we're running out of time, but I, I, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'd love to just to hear. I mean, where do you see, you know, crowdfunding and this kind of publishing going? I mean, I've written a couple of pieces for, for PW about how Kickstarter is, you know, it's certainly transforming the prose world. Um, it's transforming the comics world, uh, um, uh, not just for, you know, th- these kinds of obscure projects, but for, uh, for instance, uh, LGBTQ uh, projects uh, aimed at creating original works uh, that target that community. I did a piece just recently about African-American creators um, funding diversity, essentially publishing, you know, stories that target that community or involve those kinds of creators. Um, it, it just seems like they we're in a period where there's unlimited opportunities and if you can show that you're capable that there's funding from an audience that maybe um, traditional publishers may not have thought even existed. Well, the thing about crowdfunding or one thing about crowdfunding is that it it rewards real depth of engagement mm-hmm. with your audience as opposed to uh, traditional publishing, which really rewards with, you want as many customers as possible to buy as many units as Mm -hmm. possible. Um, But the one thing uh, that I've learned from these crowdfunding projects is that you, you don't need as large an audience if you have an audience that is passionate about Mm -hmm. what you're doing and really cares about these projects and wants to not necessarily just get the book, but help spread the word, mm-hmm. become a part of this kind of crusade to make these things happen. And so a lot of what we're thinking about with Beehive mm-hmm. uh, is, and this Crowley project could not be a more perfect example, um, what kind of books need to exist but might not be possible or might at least not be profitable at all uh, through any kind of mainstream mm-hmm. publishing mechanism? Mm-hmm. I mean, if we had done this Crowley project uh, through a mainstream publisher, you would have been communicating not directly with customers, but with retailers who you have yeah. to convince to order the book and convince to sell the book. Yeah. And you're trying to sell a thing that they have no idea. Yes, yes, yes. You can show them a piece yes. of art and say, this is really cool, but they have no way of knowing whether yeah. their customers are going to buy that. Yeah. Um, and, and it's so, perfectly I mean, understandable. <laughs> Yeah, no, they're not. They wouldn't be doing anything wrong. I think. Yeah. I, I don't know if I don't know if I would. I mean, I would have ordered it as a retailer because I'm a bad yeah. retailer. I would have ordered six <laughs> copies of it probably, and they would have sat on the shelf. <laughs> but but it, 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 I, I mean, Justin uh, had been uh, 
pitching um, this Crowley project uh, to other publishing companies before before I talked to him, and he'd not gotten any interest. And I don't think those publishers were wrong to not mm-hmm. be interested. Mm-hmm. I don't think it really would have worked through those mechanisms. Mm-hmm. But you know, when when you can speak directly to the people who love this stuff, and, and you can create a whole campaign that shows them why it's meaningful, that tells the story of this guy's mm-hmm. life and his art. You can get them in, engaged with with your mission and to get them to become a part of it. And so they'll help spread the word. They might not just buy the book. They might also get, uh, you know, we did slipcase editions of the book that are, mm-hmm. are signed and numbered and come with a lot of extra prints and stuff like that. Uh, and so you don't need like a mass audience. And so what we're trying to build, Build at Beehive is this sort of like intimate group of readers and collectors who are really passionate about the same stuff that we're passionate about and want these projects to exist. Like I, I feel like a, a book like this Crowley book, the world is a in a very tiny way a better place to have a book like that in it mm-hmm. because otherwise his his work will disappear forever and never. I mean it it, it just would not be remembered on on any level. Um, and for a lot of these archival things, it's it's similar. You know, we're at this point where comics is reaching it's 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 over a hundred years old now, um, and a lot of the early stuff is starting to slide away into the sands mm-hmm. of time, where it's going to be hard to retrieve. Um, but so we want to build this audience that really believes in in what our mission is here, which is to create these uh, beautiful, magical art object books that that need to exist. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a big part of what makes crowdfunding so powerful. Um, that it, I mean, the, the reason that big publishers have always had such a huge advantage, um, is that, you know, they have a, they have a bigger platform than anybody mm-hmm. else. They have a louder voice. They can afford to advertise. They can, they can reach mm-hmm. more people. Um, even if somebody else makes a product that's just as broadly appealing, um, it's hard to get it in front of people's eyes mm-hmm. if you don't have those if you don't have that infrastructure mm-hmm. um but uh, with with the internet and social media and crowdfunding it's it's becoming less and less true so i mean i think it's a disruptive model in the best possible sense mm-hmm. um and I'm, I'm very excited about what the possibilities of it are and i i think like you said especially for for voices uh that don't have as broad a platform uh that have been neglected by a lot of the bigger publishers. Uh, they're realizing, I think, how foolish they've been mm-hmm. in a lot of ways yeah. because these these projects appear on Kickstarter or other sorry, or other crowdfunding campaigns, and they blow up because yeah. people are hungry for incredible those numbers. Of stories. Um, well, Josh, look, I, I think we're going to have to end on that note. Uh, but this has actually been a fascinating discussion. Um, obviously, I'll be it can. I will remain in touch with you. We uh, we're anxious to see um, what uh, your first project from Beehive Books will look like. Um, the uh, Secret World. Well, the Crowley. The Crowley project is the first one. That's the first uh, one. But so we, yeah, we, then... we we're anxious to see that once you get that done. But uh, really, um, uh, really, what I, I really think you got you and then your 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 um, your collaborators at Locust Moon uh, really have kind of outlined sort of you know one path that's open in this you know kind of brave new world of of publishing now thanks to the internet and crowdfunding so um anyway josh thank yes and thank you for being on more to come